verse 32 all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, I'll read it for us. You can follow along on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to the man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> uh, God, we thank you so much that uh, you give us the gift of your word. Uh, and even a story like this, which uh, maybe can seem so strange to us, uh, there is something that you have to not only instruct us, but to uh, remind us something uh, very important about who you are. And so we pray that in this time, you would speak to us through your word and your spirit, and uh, you would fill us with your spirit and give us uh, the conviction in our hearts uh, to see you and to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going through the book of Acts, and uh, we're going through the book of Acts because it talks about two very important things. It talks about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and it talks about the origins of the early church. And while I want to emphasize that what we need most is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that also doesn't mean that uh, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit removes all challenges for the church. We already saw that the ministry of the Holy Spirit did all sorts of amazing things, uh, like it led thousands of uh, people to repentance. They were cut to the heart. Uh, we saw that the Holy Spirit, uh, through working through Peter, was able to heal a lame man. And it was also the work of the Holy Spirit that triggered the first instance of persecution because John and Peter were arrested after the healing of this lame man. And today what we're going to do is we're going to see some of the challenges that are not outside of the church, like persecution, but now we find a challenge that comes from within the community. And I think it's important to remember that even when there is a powerful work of the Holy Spirit, 
Satan is always at work simultaneously trying to hinder or destroy the church through right, outward pressure like persecution or through the lusts of the flesh. And if you remember our series on Revelation, that's also what we saw in the book of Revelation. And one of the clearest fruits of the Spirit that is uh, expressed, uh, that expresses love, I would say, is probably radical generosity. When you see radical generosity taking place in a community, uh, then you, you can conclude, wow, the Spirit really is at work in this community. And conversely, probably one of the greatest dangers uh, of the flesh is the intoxicating allure of money. How many of you love money? <laughs> You're all liars. <laughs> I, I, I just asked that qu question to make a point. Um, money is like this weird thing to talk about, right? We don't like to admit that we like it. We don't like to admit that it's important to us. It's like a very personal and private matter. Uh, some of you know that I've embarked on this like new career alongside my calling as a pastor in the financial uh, services industry. So I've actually thought a lot about uh, money in its spiritual dimensions. And, you know, uh, I ended up in this career because, like, I, it's a long story, but I joined this bivocational fellowship through the denomination. They had us take a, a career assessment. I met with a career counselor. Long story short, I was expecting that the as assessment would say I should be a teacher, but the assessment said I should be in business and finance. And then after talking to it with the counselor, I was like, oh, it actually makes a lot of sense. So I ended up pursuing this career in the financial industry. And uh, I told them, you know, I do enjoy finance as a hobby, and I would listen to, like, financial podcasts and read financial newsletters and read some of the white papers that were produced by some of these financial firms and give their perspective on the economy. And I told them, I don't, it's not that I have, like, a ton of money in the market, so I wasn't interested in it from an investment standpoint. I like reading these things because I think it gives me a good sense of, like, reality, right, of what's actually happening, uh, especially... Um, you know, with like news having different opinion and emphasizing different aspects and different elements, I thought, hey, if people are going to make choices and decisions and they have a lot of skin in the game based on what's real and what's not, it's probably financial people. So I wanted to hear their opinion. That's, that's how it all started for me, actually. And that's actually what I think economics ultimately is about. Uh, it's about understanding uh, not just money, but specifically the humans behind right, the flow of money, the exchange of money. There's this Catholic priest na named Robert Sirico, and he's an interesting guy that caught my attention because he's a Catholic priest, but he writes a lot about economics and the free market, so he's kind of like meshing these two things. And this is what he says. He says, economics at its most fundamental level is not about money, but it's about human action. And I think he's right. Economics is not about money, but it's understanding the people behind the money, which is why I think the Bible talks so much about money and possessions. He just published uh, a new book, I think in the past year, and uh, his book is called The Economics of the Parables. And basically what he's doing is he's taking, he's making a commentary on a lot of Jesus' parables and what uh, they're, they're saying about money. And I should have realized this, but it didn't really hit me until I got the book. But a lot of Jesus' parables actually have to do with money, right? Finding it, losing it, earning it, saving it, spending it, and investing it. And for many people, talking about money seems uh, too personal, and it doesn't seem like a spiritual topic, so therefore it doesn't seem like it would belong in a place like a church. So we don't really talk about it in Christian settings, and if we do talk about it, um, maybe we think that's too worldly of a conversation, and it doesn't necessarily 
when you survey the Bible, it talks a great deal about money and possessions, and it seems to play a significant role in terms of our relationship with God. And you ask the question, why? Why does the Bible talk so much about money? Why is it so intertwined with spirituality? And I think the answer is pretty simple, although it probably requires some unpacking. The answer is this. Money is a very powerful idol. Idol's not a statue, but it re represents something in the Bible. It re represents something that replaces God. It's a counterfeit version of God. It's something that has power because when an idol has a hold of our hearts and our worship, we look to that idol to give us what only God can give us, salvation, joy, hope, security, whatever it might be. And that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve both God and money or mammon. There's a, there's a book called Theology of Money by Philip Goodchild, and <clears throat> uh, basically what he does is he, uh, in a very dense way, breaks down how money can serve as an idol, and he highlights the competition between God and money in greater depth, and I like this passage that he wrote, so I'm going to read it. He says this, where God promises eternity, money promises the world. Where God offers a delayed reward, money offers a reward in advance. Where God offers himself as grace, money offers itself as a loan. Where God offers spiritual benefits, money offers tangible benefits. Where God accepts all repentant sinners who truly believe, money may be accepted by all who are willing to trust in its value. Where God requires conversion of the soul, money empowers the existing desires and plans of the soul. Money has the advantages of immediacy, universality, tangibility, and utility. Money promises freedom and gives a down payment on the promise of prosperity. And so money is uniquely powerful in what it can actually do to our souls, to our hearts. It's alluring because of the promises that it gives, because of the potential that it has, and it has the power to form and shape all of our desires. And not only that, but money requires a degree of faith, does it not? You have to put your trust in its invisible value. Yes, you can see money in the form of like a dollar bill, or you can see it in the form of your bank statements, but how do you know that the dollar bill is not just a piece of paper? How do you know the bank statement is, just, uh, is not just numbers on a screen? Uh, you need faith to know that these numbers or this piece of paper is pointing to an invisible reality, which is this is valuable. One of the things I've come to realize uh, about the financial industry, especially as like, I'm studying for all of these uh, exams, is it's very regulated, right? It's a highly regulated industry. And one of the reasons why it's highly regulated is because in order for the financial industry to work, people have to trust it. Without trust, everything crumbles. You're only going to deposit your money in a bank if you trust that the money will still be there when you go to retrieve it. You're uh, only going to invest in a mutual fund uh, if you trust that the managers of that fund, they're going to extract the correct amount of expenses and do the right thing with the dividends. And so there's all these rules and regulations to make sure that there is trust in the financial system. And once there is no trust, which was one of the concerns during the financial crisis, then the entire system breaks down. And when we frame money in the language of faith, right, trust, then it's easy to see the connection between our money and our souls. Now, I probably have not talked about the spiritual dimensions of money enough as your pastor, and I probably should have more, especially because we live in New York City, where money certainly is uh, one of the main idols of New York. Uh, 
But all I'm saying is it's something that we all need to pay attention to and something we all need to guard our souls from. And by the way, that's why it's important to have a time of offering in our worship service because it's not just about giving money because God ultimately does not need our money, but it's an act of worship. It's like a way of saying, God, you deserve all my worship. Everything that I have belongs to you. I give this offering to you as an expression of that worship because this money is not worthy of my worship. And that's what we're saying uh, or what we want to be saying in our hearts during offering, right? So I give that introduction about money and uh, framing it as we now turn to this text. If you're familiar with this story, uh, the part about Ananias and Sapphira, it's a little bit unusual. Uh, maybe it's a little bit unnerving. I myself had a lot of questions about the theological significance of it, of like, why did this happen? What happened? Um, <clears throat> after the community of believers, if you remember from the passage prior, they had like this spontaneous prayer meeting in response to the persecution that they were experiencing. And one of the things they pray for is they pray for boldness to be able to continue to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after that prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit comes and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they get the boldness that they were praying for. And that filling of the Holy Spirit had a profound effect on the entire community because what happens next is the Spirit creates this deep sense of unity. That unity was so deep that it says in verse 32, right? It says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So the Spirit brought such a deep sense of unity amongst these believers that everybody would even go on to share all of their belongings with one another. And I think we usually probably settle for cheaper counterfeit versions of unity. Like everybody will say, oh, unity is great and I love unity. But then uh, if you really think about uh, real unity, it does require a lot of sacrifice and a lot of work uh, in order to not only attain that unity, but to maintain that unity. And for the most part, uh, we, not we at uh, Good News, but we in our society, we, ki we kind of live like we're, uh, and this illustration comes from Tim Keller, we live like we're these like individual marbles and we aggregate in shared spaces. Uh, but the Bible's version of Christian community, of Christian unity is actually that we are organically connected to other like a cluster of grapes. And uh, I think division is probably the default experience. Division is much easier uh, in the short term. And when the Spirit fills God's people, one of the evidences of that filling, I think, is going to be this deep supernatural sense of unity. And we see it in this early Christian community through the sharing of all of their material possessions. Now, just to be clear, uh, people weren't just giving what they could spare but there were some people who were actually giving large percentages of their assets. People who owned land or houses sold them and ended up bringing these proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet so that they could be distributed to anyone who had any kind of need. And just to give you a little bit of context of the ancient world, most people uh, in those days didn't own houses or land. Um, it's probably gonna be a very different context than our particular context. Commentary says maybe 10% of the population owned property or land and the rest of the population, they probably struggled. 
financially. They probably had a lot of needs. And so in order to meet the needs of so many people, you have like this small percentage of middle class and upper class believers, and they're selling their property so that they can distribute all of these proceeds in order to help probably the significant majority of people who were in need. Now, in this story, what you also find is a juxtaposition of two, well, technically three characters, but like two sides, right? So the first person is somebody named Joseph who is called Barnabas by the apostles because, which means son of encouragement, presumably because he was very encouraging. He is identified as one of the people who sold his field and gave the money to the apostles. And if you continue to read the book of Acts, Barnabas actually ends up becoming a very significant figure because Barnabas is uh, the one who welcomed Paul uh, after his conversion to becoming a Christian. Remember Paul, uh, he used to be, or his name is Saul, uh, and he hated Christians and he persecuted Christians intensely. But then on the road to Damascus, he has his conversion experience. And understandably, other believers are a little bit skeptical uh, like, oh, is this a trick? Is he trying to infiltrate our community? Is he going to threaten us? But no, Barnabas actually serves as a bridge uh, that invites Paul into the community. And maybe you don't have Paul's ministry to the Gentiles without somebody like Barnabas. So Barnabas is a, is a very important figure uh, in the book of Acts. Now, <clears throat> he is the positive example um, by his radical generosity. But then you also have paralleled with that a very negative example. There's this couple Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a piece of property. And the difference between them and Barnabas is they ultimately lied to the apostles about what they were giving. Now, just to be clear, there wasn't any kind of command to sell, like, oh, you have to sell your property and you have to give 100% of it away. Uh, this was supposed to be an entirely voluntary endeavor. Uh, so it's not like this couple, they were coerced into this act of generosity and they were kind of like, oh no, like um, what's going to happen to us if, if uh, we have nothing else uh, to live on, right? It, it's supposed to be a, a voluntary act of generosity. And yet, for some reason, they scheme to lie about the amount that they were actually giving away with respect to the sale of their property. And what they ended up doing was they kept some of the proceeds for themselves and they brought a part of the proceeds to the apostles. And somehow, Peter knows this, and he calls him out on it. So he says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was, it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So again, he's reemphasizing, look, this was ultimately your, your money, right? Uh, have to give it all away, but rather than just um, saying, hey, I'm going to keep a portion of it and this part I'm going to give to you, for some reason, they decide to lie about it. And as a result, and this is the unusual part, Ananias suddenly falls down and he dies. Three hours later, his wife comes in. She lies too, and she dies. It is a strange event, and uh, I imagine if we witnessed something like ha that happen, great fear would come upon us as it did the entire church back then. And uh, it's interesting. There's actually a parallel story of this in the book of Joshua. And as I was reading the commentaries on the book of Acts, one of the things they point out is there's this Greek word uh, that Peter uses for keep back for yourself. 
and it's a very rare Greek word, but you also find it in the Greek translation of uh, Joshua chapter 7. And in Joshua chapter 7, there's this man named Achan. In Joshua 7, Israel is defeated in battle. And the reason they're defeated in battle is because of sin, right? God says not to do something, basically not to take the devoted things. But someone took the devoted things, and therefore they didn't win the battle. And God told Israel that you were defeated because you, Israel, you disobeyed. Somebody stole and lied about it. And so what Joshua does is he interrogates all the tribes, and he asks Achan what he did. And it turns out, Achan says, I stole a beautiful cloak, uh, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold. And it is an example of how one person's sin ended up hurting the entire community because uh, not, not only did they lose a battle, but 36 men were killed as a result of losing that battle. I don't know why at this particular point God decided to pour out his judgment on this couple who lied about their financial contributions. I imagine that People lie all the time, and they're not necessarily struck dead. But in this particular case, they lie to the Holy Spirit, and they're struck dead. And I'm sure from our vantage point, it seems like maybe a minor sin and not something that's worthy of being struck down dead. But maybe this was just a very important time in establishing the church. Just like in Joshua 7, Israel was at a very important time in establishing the kingdom as they were going into the land of Canaan. Maybe God was protecting the church in this very vulnerable time. I don't, I don't actually really know the answer. These are some of the suggestions that are out there. Um, but to me, it's no surprise that one of the first and greatest threats to the early church has to do with money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Do you remember? For 30 pieces of silver. It was this desire for money that led to the betrayal and the cru crucifixion of our Lord. And what Satan does is he uses our love for money and leads us to greater sin, just as he did for Ananias. Whereas the community had just been filled with the Holy Spirit, the juxtaposition here is Satan filled Ananias' heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know we are maybe used to thinking about generosity within a certain kind of framework, right? We think about we should be generous because there's so many practical needs out there, which is not wrong. Because um, the community in Acts was thinking about meeting people's needs as well. Maybe we think about generosity because of the advantages that it affords us. There's uh, tax benefits, or maybe there's like social status or honor, or maybe even a personal positive feeling that comes to us when we are generous and do something good for another person. And all of those things are, of course, good reasons to be generous, but what I would suggest uh, we think of in terms of the importance of generosity is we think about it within a spiritual framework. Yes, it's important to meet the needs of the community, but if you look at the radical result of Ananias and Sapphira's deception, it is much more important to the church to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to be filled with Satan's deceptions. Uh, it's not just the modern financial systems that would collapse without trust, but so too the church, right? So also the ministry of the church. The, pro the church professes to believe in truth, therefore we must live according to the truth. And because in our particular culture, personal finances are so private, 
uh, that's probably the one area where we don't have accountability with respect to our own personal lust for money and wealth as other kinds of temptations. I think that's what makes money even more dangerous to our souls. So I would just say two things. First, uh, you need to guard your hearts from the lust of money. Every one of us, right? Who here likes money? I raise my hand. We all like money. Especially in New York, and you, you're probably walking next to people who have much more money than you. And uh, it's hard not to say, oh, man, I want that, right? We have to uh, guard our hearts, our souls from the lust of money. It's seductive. It can promise so much. Uh, oh, this past week, how many of you dreamed of uh, hitting that $2 billion lottery ticket, right? <laughs> right? Money is not evil itself, right? Money is a tool, but the love of it. I think we have to be generous people, radically generous. Um, pastor John, previous pastor of this church, he's written so many things that I forget where he wrote this. He wrote a book on generosity, but uh, I remember he, one of the things that he said is one of the signs that we are in a revival in the Western church is going to be you're going to start to see a lot of radical generosity taking place. And I think that's actually true based on this text. Uh, I think once we see radical generosity taking place, I think it will be a good sign that the church is being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it will be a sign that the church doesn't bow its knee to money, but it bows its knee and worship to God alone. Now, how can we get there? I think chapter 5, verse 33 is one of the keys. Now, in this verse, the context here, right? Everybody is sharing uh, all of their things. Everybody is selling, not everybody, but certain people are selling their properties, giving it to the needy. Uh, this is also what was happening in the midst of that. In 533, it says this, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Grace comes when we hear and receive the gospel. Why? Because in the gospel, we have received the greatest treasure of all, more than money or riches, more than silver or gold. And by the way, if you remember, that's what Peter says to this lame man, right? He says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Peter brought the power of the resurrection to this lame man, and he is restored. Um, Peter didn't have silver or gold. We don't need silver or gold to do good ministry. Uh, churches don't need silver or gold. What we do have is the power of the Holy Spirit, power of the resurrection. We have this gospel, which is not just a system of philosophy or something that is meant to give us inspiration. The gospel is truly a power. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. It's the power of salvation for all who believe. Power is a force. It has ability to do something. The gospel has the power to give life, to give salvation to transform us, to redeem us. It has the power to save us from our sin and from darkness. It has the power to raise us from death to life. This is the greatest treasure we could ever claim to have. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, he convicts us of these truths in our hearts so that we might actually experience true freedom, which is freedom from the lust of money, uh, freedom from the worries of money, and freedom to live life with radical generosity and here's a cool thing this gospel is housed in weakness 
We saw this in 2 Corinthians. This gospel is housed in jars of clay. The church, our church, Good News Church, houses this gospel not with gold or silver, but in weakness. Yeah, I, I don't know if anybody <laughs> doesn't like money. Uh, we don't have to love it, though. We don't have to depend upon it. We don't have to allow it to control us, control our affections, control our anxieties. Um, we can actually be free from it because we know that in Christ, we have a much greater treasure. And friends, I tell you, I think this is uh, the biggest thing um, that I don't talk about enough, uh, but being in a place like New York, this is probably going to be the biggest, one of the biggest temptations that all of us face, and we have to guard our hearts from it. Let's pray. Uh, God, what a strange passage, but um, what an encouraging time it must have been to see such ra radical generosity taking place, to see people actually selling their land and their property and distributing it to uh, those who are poor and those who are needy within the community. You know, what a sight that must have been. I pray, God, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, uh, that we might... Um, embody the same kind of generosity. And, you know, in particular for churches in the West where uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, negative news. And uh, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe churches in the West have also succumbed to bowing down to the idol of money. And maybe uh, money has already corrupted uh, many churches and scandals have come about. Uh, but God, we ask that uh, you would reverse that. And rather than relying upon gold or silver, uh, to keep churches running, to do good ministry, uh, that we would simply see it as the tool that it is. And ultimately what we would see is um, a need for uh, the power of the gospel to be at work and that everything would be in submission to that. Um, help us to guard our hearts. Uh, help us to uh, give us the gift of freedom to receive this great treasure that has been given to us, this great inheritance, as First Peter says, uh, that's imperishable and cannot be uh, defiled or um, spoiled, um, but this great treasure that we have in Christ, that we might, regardless of what we have in our bank accounts, that we might feel infinitely rich in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.